All right, I want to start by giving a special shout out to Sean McPherson over at is it KBEM? I forget the call. That's right. Science for the uh, the jazz station here yeah. in the in the Twin Cities, formerly with Minnesota Public Radio, but doing really great things over at KBEM. Uh, one of my favorite things about Sean is that he throws a great party. So we had a little uh, front yard. Uh, party he invited uh, us over to over the weekend and you always you know great to connect with local music folks and former colleagues and Mm -hmm. um, I was I was hanging out with um, some folks and we started talking about uh, the importance and the viability of video game music towards getting more folks back into the concert hall we started talking shop you know at at the party always happens and the and the conversation quickly moves over into the realm of movie music and Sometimes I just forget that that's an area that a lot of people pay a lot of attention to and have memorable um, moments with, or, you know, just a, a great pathway to getting folks into that symphonic, you know, straight up orchestral aesthetic of music. If you're engaging somebody uh, in conversation and they're like, oh, well, you know, what's what's some movie music that uh, I might not know. We all know the John Williams stuff and right. you know that all of that, but do you That's have any easy. do you have any movie music tracks that may be uh, less famous but that really come, you know, quickly to mind when you think about the power of that genre of western classical music? Usually what I'll do is I'll ask one more question which is uh name some pop artists that are mm. on the top of your list. Mm-hmm. Because if they've ever done any collaboration on a film, then that's a natural pipeline to you know move them over to that sure. soundtrack. But, sure. um, there is a, a film called The Last Emperor with uh, music composed by three different men. There's Ryuichi Sakamoto, who which is a you know the godfather of electronic music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have David Byrne from The Talking Heads, that fame, and a traditional composer Kung Su. And they all did parts of the score for The Last Emperor. And it creates an aesthetic, though. But um, I I think in this instance, having name recognition has people a little bit more open to receive something, you know, like this, you know, traditional Chinese sounding uh, soundtrack. some more music to listen to through the week i don't know this film or this music that i I love the sound of that talk about music being a character in the movie that's you you have it that music has a a sunshine personality to me you can't help but to kind of smile when that violin comes in it's Mm. like oh hello welcome to this (laughs) to this um movie music experience the stage You, you talk a lot about the fisher king being your favorite film why does this movie music come to mind immediately when you're engaging that conversation with folks using movie music to rope them into uh, the getting used to that orchestral aesthetic or appreciate learning to appreciate it. Um, the idea of finding a name that they know oh, and I see saying, what you're saying, you know, and saying, well, you know, if you like the talking heads, he worked on this with reach Ryuichi Sakamoto. And if you like techno music, electronic music, mm-hmm. 
the the people my age and up know the name Sakamoto, and right. if they okay. hear that if they hear that he worked on a soundtrack, they're going to go and buy it. Okay. Okay. And I think even the aesthetic of that music in itself is user friendly enough to uh to to, to be something that folks can bite onto. It, it's, it yeah. definitely sounds like the setting is Asia. Uh, the symphonic language, you know, you have the drums, you have the uh, the marimbas in there, and then the violin. So it's not too dense, you know, to to take in. And at the same time, it's it's fully, um, you know, symphonic, and maybe even challenging the notion of uh, orchestras looking as they do here in the United States and Western Europe, because you even have some of those mm-hmm. uh, Eastern instruments that I hear mm-hmm. mixed in there as well. It gives me the sensation that they were paying a lot of respect yep. as well, because it, there, there's moments where it, it feels like they've unearthed some new traditional piece, mm-hmm. you know, yep. introduced something brand new that, I don't know, I think that it just has a lot of staying power and it's a it's a character in the film. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, th- those conversations at the party uh, sort of inspired my second movement pick. I'm going to bring in some uh, music written by an Italian film composer, uh, a composer whose name I didn't know, but I wanted to uh, make sure uh, before we got there that the name Ennio Morricone mm. uh, is one that folks know. Maybe there are folks listening who aren't as familiar with you know the movie music outside of the John Williams and the and Danny Elfman's and and those folks, but uh, Ennio Morricone, I would say, really is at the head of this very uh, specific but very interesting tradition in Western classical music of Italian people writing for American TV and mm-hmm. American film. It's where the idea of spaghetti Western comes from. Nino Rota, um, yeah, Nino Rota, you know, being at the head of that, uh, but. You know, anyway, thinking about the Italian composer that I'm bringing into the second movement, I had to bring in Ennio Morricone. And over the week, I was listening to uh, a little bit more of the music that he wrote for the film, The Hateful Late. Did you ever see that one? I watched it with you. Oh, did you? Oh, I've seen it. I I love the film. I've seen it a lot. You were shocked (laughs) that I hadn't seen it. And you sat me down and had me watch it. I mean, as as much as, you know, our uh, our favorite film director, Tarantino, loves that N-word. He gets on my nerves with that. He needs to chill. Uh, But he he makes a a really great film. And I thought uh, The Hateful Eight was one of those. I went and saw it down in Knoxville back when it came out with uh, my homie Sean. Shout out to Sean Horn with the Knoxville Symphony. And as soon as the film starts, you know, we get this Ennio Morricone music. Um, Something menacing is coming, you know, very much in that Tarantino vibe. Uh, Lots of bassoons in here and contrabassoon and uh, a masterclass on playing the hi-hat. Right, on top of everything. Right. Incredible piece of music here. Uh, Love to my diligenza di Red Rock by Ennio Morricone from the soundtrack to The Hateful Eight. time i've always loved that hi-hat as soon as we left seeing it in the theaters back when it came out we had to go straight to a rehearsal Mm. and i found myself playing that little motif 
Um, it's a good finger exercise on bassoon, you know, get your thumb workout. It's mm. a way of playing lawn tones. And, you know, just among the many examples of film music that really paint the picture within themselves. I, f- I feel like we we think about film music maybe often enough, but we relegate the conversation to so few composers, I, I guess, as we do across the board in, in this orchestral yeah, field. Yeah. I just wanted to you know make sure that Ennio Morricone was a name that folks know before I get into the uh, the Italian composer I'm going to talk about in the second movement. Uh, before we jump in and get started with this opus, last week, Scott, I'm going to hold you to something that you said last week. So in the Triloquy, mm-hmm. we were talking about ways to build solidarity between folks on uh, polar opposites of the political spectrum, taking that idea of, of romanticizing America and finding pieces of music that fit into that narrative to not only shake out the Beethovens and the Mozarts of the of the concert hall to center America and maybe find a point of connection between mm-hmm. those of us, you know, on fight, you know, who who they would call the 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 woke crowd or whatever, trying to shift orchestral music. You have us in the room because Beethoven is is being, you know, put to the side and the political sensibilities of America, fuck yeah, people are being affirmed through the programming. Um, Are you talking about going even harder right then? Because, I mean, there's a lot of conservative people in the audience already anyway. Right. Okay. Say, I mean, say, say more. Some, sometimes I think we don't think about that. We think of a classical music audience being the, you know, snobby upper crust. Oh, I have, have some money. So that must mean I'm, I'm a a liberal artsy person. You're, you're saying that's not necessarily who's in the crowd. Um, By just law of averages, you're going to have some conservative people in there, but no, um, I can't necessarily speak for the you know the station that I'm in now, but stations that I've worked at before mm-hmm. had very large conservative audiences simply by virtue of the state and city that I was in. Sure, sure, sure. So they're already going to be there. But uh, I mean, if you want to bring in the younger crowd along with them, I'd put Metallica in front of it. But um, but but let's not get too far away from you know which they've done. What 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 I gave you a week to to ponder is taking that. America first sort of attitude that many of us find problematic or, or a little worrisome, utilizing that toward decolonization, toward decentering European literature mm-hmm. and centering some of that classic American, you know, bald eagle sort of music, Aaron <laughs> Copeland, as a stepping stone toward the bigger conversation of really centering unique American aesthetics, mm-hmm. starting with the European aesthetic as realized by these white men, American composers, who we can get, you know, some political conservatives behind, not only toward decolonizing the space, but finding one modicum of commonality between communities that wouldn't typically have anything to agree on. I think it's going to be difficult because the America, fuck yeah, people. Uh, are going to look at an orchestra and say, "Look, look at all these pusillanimouses." Th- what's what's the word? <laughs> oh, great! So now instead of the European pusillanimouses, we're going to hear American pusillanimouses. <laughs> so, Am I even using the right yeah, word? I, I guess you're using that word to mean look at look at all of these snowflakes. Look at all of these yeah. w- whatevers. So there's so there's no hope. We <laughs> that there's there's no way for us to and the only reason it's on my mind is because 
it, it just really stuck out to me when the FBI raided. This is not a political podcast, but when <laughs> when the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago, and you had some of those hard right you know, celebrities of the Republican Party saying abolish the FBI and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. You had a lot of Black Lives Matter people saying, yes, Yes. exactly. Here we are. (laughs) So, of course, the energy was focused on their hypocrisy. You know, Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter saying, oh, see, y'all don't care now. But what if the focus could be, okay, let's let's just freeze this moment. We, we, We have some commonality here. Can we do something with that? That's what I'm thinking about as it could apply potentially to orchestral spaces. We could we could take the idea of America, 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 find that orchestral repertoire and put it on the stages and, you know, shifting Rachmaninoff and them to the side in it, as, as we do that. Rachmaninoff died an American citizen, though, by the way. That's true. You know, so there's that. But you get, you, you get what I'm saying, you know. So you, they're going to find a way to get Rachmaninoff on a program. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? <laughs> you said they're going to find a way no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's just me trying to build or think about what unity and solidarity could be. You know, just thought experimenting and, and traveling down rabbit holes, all in an effort to make classical music something that more mm. people give a damn about. Let's get started. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this... It's Triloquy, Opus 162. Thank you so much for returning to all of the returning listeners. When we get our Emmy, I think the theme, we need to be at a stage where the theme music is a little hard, you know, because this this theme music is is really great. It gets me uh, swooving. That's the word I'll <laughs> use, swooving every time. But when we walk on that stage, because you know I'm going to have something to say. <laughs> we, uh, we need to have something a little, you know. <clears throat> season three. The season three theme could yeah. go in. Or, you know, when we when we get to our when we get to our next season, that's when we'll you know that that that's when the Emmys will see us. <laughs> I'm looking. Okay, okay, fine. Okay, fine. Pulitzer. A, a Pulitzer Prize <laughs> then. Yeah, go high. Oh, <laughs> I accidentally hit the problematic button. Anyway, sorry. Thank you to returning listeners. If you are new, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a podcast that aims to brought in the circle around classical music. We take conversation, we take pieces of music um, and and all sorts of stuff that doesn't necessarily fit or hasn't traditionally fit into that paradigm of classical music. And we make it fit all toward decolonizing the phrase classical music and everything surrounding it. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, you can visit Triloquy.org. You can check out past opuses, uh, donate there, and learn a little bit more about some of the folks who have made this show possible. In addition to all of your support. Triloquy is made possible in part by the Lakes Area Music Festival. More on them at lakesareamusic.org. Huge shout out to Springboard for the Arts here in St. Paul for your continued support. And once again, a huge thanks to each and every one of you who continue to make this show possible. We're going to check our accidentals and move into the first movement. We were uh, on a 
a, a very similar page this week when it comes to the classical news. How could the, you miss? And the happenings and, and goings on. Uh, I think we're going to start this week with a, a nice sharp, something positive happening in the world of the arts. I'm reading here from ClassicFM.com. Headline. Again, again, this is from overseas. Yep. Yep. They see what we're doing. And, uh, and the headline here is Solange Knowles is driving a ballet revolution as young fans flock to buy tickets. Before I even get into any of this, uh, in the content of this article, with the headline, Solange is driving a, Solange is Solange. <laughs> Solange is driving a ballet revolution as young fans flock to buy tickets. So th- there, there must be something happening. So before we talk about what is being programmed, before we talk about who's on stage and the diversity of, of X, Y, and Z, Solange and ballet and people are buying tickets are in the same sentence, which means, okay, I need to buy a ticket. Mm -hmm. You see, it reminds me of when you're in a crowd and someone starts running and before long, everyone is running, but no one maybe (laughs) knows why you're running. That that sort of name recognition is is something that should not be slept on. You know, anyway, let me let me read a little bit here. It says Solange Knowles, singer songwriter and sister of Beyonce, is making history with a new musical commission from the New York City Ballet. Her composition will be debuted at the ballet company's Fall Fashion Gala on the 28th of September, making Solange the third woman ever to have a work commissioned by the New York City Ballet and the second black woman. When you read this and learned about this news, where did your mind go? What did you think? First off, I want to say hats off to Classic FM for not starting off with a headline like Beyonce's sister Solange is having a ballet produced. I don't. This year. I don't. I'm. I'm reading straight from the thing when I and I know I slipped up there and said Solange, <laughs> <laughs> but I yeah. that 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 must be. You know, you you have to tip your hat to Solange because it has to be a lot for your sister to be Beyonce. It just has to be a lot for you. And she has and she has accomplished so much on her own that we don't even talk about. Uh, she was the globe for years. She was the global brand ambassador for Puma, if mm-hmm. you know that brand, sure, like the shoes sure. and yep. um her her music in itself she's phenomenal you know she's a great musician um a very creative musician like a great vocalist but someone who you can tell pays attention to Mm -hmm. uh some of the more compositional aspects of it anyway give it up to you know solange shout out to solange i've always been a fan so you asked the first thing that i thought when i read this the first question was um what sort of collaboration between these sisters is there does uh, does Solange do features on Beyonce's work, vice versa? There has been some of that. Okay, yeah. so you've already said that Renaissance is part one of a three-part project. I think that's what they're saying, yeah. Okay, and then you said maybe she's going to give us a symphony. Yeah, maybe Beyonce will give us a symphony, sure. So do you think that there might be a, a little bit of foreshadowing here if maybe Beyonce showed up at a Solange ballet I don't know. Well, you know, Beyonce is going to show up, but they that the I'm sure the tickets are were bought under, you know, Pamela Pamela, you know, Gergenheimer or you know, <laughs> like but for folks that have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to the two sisters, I've always thought of Solange as the more bohemian, the more you know, again, cre- not that she's more creative necessarily than Beyonce, but I'm saying like 
the creative TM, like the creative with a big C, like mm-hmm. more of that, you know, uh, riding bikes around the city, you know, and, and that sort of way. So writing for uh, ballet just seems to be naturally what would come from uh, Solange. It's, mm. you know, it's great. We love to see it. One of the first things that came to my mind, you know, one of the struggles <laughs> that I'm having uh, in my work is really sitting down with the fact that a lot of decision makers in the arts, a lot of the gatekeepers see things that are quote unquote untraditional as a risk. If we don't yep. put insert what we've been putting on stage for, you know, five, 10 decades, if that doesn't make an appearance, we're risking sales or we're making some sort of risk. And I just don't see it that way because folks are rushing to the to the website to buy these tickets. It says here in the article, Solange's stardom saw tickets for the ballet selling at a speed often reserved for pop concerts as fans flocked to buy them. The website even implemented a virtual waiting room to avoid a crash due to the number of users at one time. So when a ballet company puts on, what are the most famous of ballet, Swan Lake Mm -hmm. or Nutcracker? Are they crashing the website? No. No, they aren't. They you, probably, can, they, you, you can politely go to the website and buy your ticket for the Nutcracker and, and everything is good. But the story was different when Solange's name is connected with a production. It's not a risk. It's an opportunity to reach out to these folks, to get the crowd that is going to rush to buy the tickets. And they have the revenue that far outweighs whatever other ballets. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say whatever other ballets, but we, we can't pretend that this is just a normal part of the of the way that ballet companies operate, having to do virtual waiting rooms. And it's because of Solange. That's what I wanted to ask you then. So how much is the name recognition playing into it? Because uh, I was sitting here wondering, would people come and flock this way to a ballet if it was done by a black woman whose name wasn't as readily um But still uh, famous. I mean, I, I think that's right. a good question. But, but then I sort of my thought even changed in the moment that maybe this is the be- maybe this is the beginning of that maybe this is where we start to get more names other than solange into right. that household name status right well, you see I think where i'm coming from yeah i think it's more than name recognition because let's say michelle obama wrote a ballet that would pick up a crowd as well and and of course, also probably a sellout crowd, but that is a different culture being affirmed than Solange on the stage. So, you know, of, of course, name recognition is a part of it. I think something that we can't take for granted is the culture recognition. Mm-hmm. Folks know the name mm-hmm. Solange. Uh, they know the music. They they know the success. They know the, the Knowles family. Um, that's not something you typically see. And here we are. And even as, you know, here on this classic FM uh, uh, article, <laughs> it's, it's really something how Black Twitter really just creates and, and molds the culture. Because even here on this classic FM, this European website has these black tweets <laughs> for people. Mm-hmm. You know, this one says, not Shalon about to ha- Solange about to have me buy tickets to the ballet just so I can hear the original score. You know, another tweet says, stop everything. Solange wrote a piece for the New York City Ballet Orchestra, what I was doing last year. I hope to get to experience it live. You know, that's from uh, the uh, the first one, the uh, Black woman, uh, Lino Pimienta, 
to uh, put some music on the uh, mm. NYC ballet stage. Um, another one, who wants to take a trip to New York City with me to go see the ballet with Solange's score? You know, people are talking about flying to uh, to New York City. If I thought that there were some tickets left, I would I would go see you know, about getting over there myself, but there probably aren't. I'll, mm. I'll, after we done recording, maybe I'll I'll take a look. Anyway, we, we got to get away from the idea of this sort of thing being risky because you're going to get the patrons. You're going to get a completely different crowd, but you're going to get the patrons. Mm-hmm. There's always, of course, another way. You got to flip the card around, flip the coin around and look at the other side. Is it getting harder or will this open the door for it to become harder for your non-celebrity composers now that because of capitalism and, and other things, I imagine we'll have arts institutions saying, oh, well, that worked for them. Now we got to get Solange or now we got to find the the uh, celebrity that's going to pull in the crowd in some way. I'm thinking about, you know, shout out to Jesse Montgomery. There was a time when... There were a lot of orchestras that wouldn't play her music. It started to catch on once one orchestra did it, and then two and three and four, and now her music is is everywhere, and she's yeah. one of the names that uh, people recognize. Do you think that this aspiration to grab the celebrity composer will spread, you know, like that wildfire in a in a similar way? If this is the catalyst, great. Yeah, you know, if that is something that. She just uh, wakes people up to the fact that there are people of color writing ballets of all sorts. Yeah. But, you know, you got to give her a couple months to come up with the next one. Okay, so in the meantime, sure. let's let's listen to some by some of these other ladies, yeah. you know, the, things like that. That could, that could be a thing if they have the, the, so, the okay. courage to do that, because it, it seems like, you know, when, when they schedule the the uh the solange ballet they see what the crowd looks like someone in the boardroom is going to be like well we're, we're isolating why are you our, putting our your finger up audience, like that you know because you- that's because that's how they will be raising their hand we're isolating our traditional audience you know so that's the justification to make sure that you have the tchaikovsky ballet or 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 whatever on the stage I in would addition. Hold, I would hold up my finger and say, <laughs> nobody's say- talking about getting rid of the Nutcracker. <laughs> We're just adding to it. Yeah. But but, but, but I do think that's a, a question worth asking. It, it, it does seem like a slippery slope. If you know we're we're looking at the the big name celebrities to write these ballets, the emerging composers, the folks who hadn't quite had a chance, is getting even harder for them because now they're everybody's trying to get the ticket sales and, and get the big names in for the collaborations. I think you're talking about an artist in residence sort of situation. Mm-hmm. What if uh, she was uh, brought in for a whole year to maybe produce three in total? And then help curate things around it with the staff that's already there at the New York Ballet. Something like that would be really cool. And and so I guess giving folks like Solange the freedom to curate means she'll make sure that you know there are other women composers, women well, composers whole, of color right, that are right. that are coming up and and getting the the opportunity. And you can and and in the and why not try to get some of the audience that came to the Solange Ballet to come over and catch your Les Sylphides or you know, whatever classic ballet that you do. So if I, so, okay, so now I'm, I'm in the meeting room, I'm in the boardroom. Yeah. And, you know, to, to that idea, I say, why? You know, what's in it for them to go see, insert name of traditional opera? What's, what's in it for 
that audience? Why would they want to do that? Why does that have to be in the equation if at the end of the day, we're just talking about the bottom line? That's that's the excuse when we talk about not putting certain things on stage, ticket sales. So now that you have the ticket sales, why put on the Tchaikovsky ballets at all? Because there are still people out there that like the Tchaikovsky ballets. So now all and, so so now all of a sudden we we care about a particular audience group and we'll and we'll make the financial part of the conversation secondary. You, you said see, it, I didn't. You see? No, but but you see how quickly when you really turn that turn that on its head, you can see what the the real problem is. We only talk about isolating audiences when we're talking about isolating the traditional audiences. Dare I say the white audiences? That's not to that's not to draw a line in the sand, but that's just the fact of the matter. That's, right. That's not me being ugly. You know, I'm, I'm trying. I'm talk, I was talking about solidarity. Yeah. <laughs> and, and finding places to build bridges in the intro. So I'm I'm not saying it to to draw a schism. I'm I'm just saying we're never thinking about. Uh, black communities in a city, in a community, when we talk about the fear of isolating audiences, that conversation only comes up when we're talking about the audience that these institutions already have. Sure, and I don't think that there is any re- there is anything wrong with showcasing classic art along with the new. I, I I don't see any problem with still offering some of the classic ballets. Okay, well I guess and c- c- coming coming to compromise, coming to the middle ground. Yes, some, fine. Let's keep the Tchaikovsky on the stage, but it doesn't even have to, to be a Tchaikovsky. But there has to be equal room for the innovative, and in the innovation of getting the big name celebrities commissioned to write these pieces, we have to remember that there are black women composers writing ballets today who aren't as famous as Solange, mm-hmm. and there are teams and staff members and and consultants to to pay to help identify those people so that we can keep this momentum going, normalizing black women writing ballet. This is the third time that it's, uh, the second time it's already uh, happened, third time for a, a woman at all. Let's normalize it. So uh, the folks who come to that ballet for the first time to see Solange, yeah. you know, maybe next month they're like, oh, I've never heard of this black woman. Let's go see what she's talking about. And 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 there you go. I don't like the idea of Solange being the, uh, the I'm thinking about Hansel and Gretel, the, 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 the trail, the of, trail candy. of candy, you know, to get them to the Tchaikovsky. Because at the end of the day, it should be to, well, the excuse is always to to fill the seats, you know. So if if that really is what the conversation is, then let's do a Solange or, or or black woman or whatever ballet every time. If we're you know trying to serve different audiences and and different communities, let's approach the conversation that way. But I I, I think that we just have to rid ourselves of the idea that the traditional canon has to be in the conversation in any way because it really doesn't have to if the person only wants to come to the ballet to see the solange ballet that's all they want to see mm-hmm. and that's and that's just that and if you have the opportunity to do more of that for those communities why not especially if the tickets sell especially if you're maintaining your bottom line as an organization you know and not that i want to center money and all this stuff but that's just what it seems like the conversation no, comes down to when it when it's time to talk about innovation that's what the conversation is it's the money is definitely in there nobody's no shade <laughs> anyway huge congratulations to solange can't wait to hear the reviews and you know who knows maybe i'll get to find my way into into the into the new york city ballet but they're doing hall. It, they're doing it in may too huh those are sold out as well I don't. I, I don't know. I haven't been on the website at all. Okay. Well, according to this, shows are in October and May, so okay. maybe 
Well, I suppose we'll see. Well, when it comes to salons, you know, everyone has uh, their favorites. My favorite salon's composition is one called Losing You. The music video is beautiful. The melody is catchy. It has that really beautiful undertow of melancholy under it. Just one tiny example of the genius of Solange Knowles. Let's listen to a little bit of this to get us to our next accident. It's a really beautiful song. I don't listen to it a lot because it just reminds me of of certain things. I like that you know? a lot. You know, but, but but do you hear what I mean about that undertow of melancholy, especially for such an upbeat song? But then you have the beauty of the the visuals. She's in South Africa. I think it was Johannesburg. And mm-hmm. of course, folks in those communities are so excited to get dressed up and to be artistic. And anyway, that that's what I mean by Solange being the creative, being the the avant-garde, the the person to really branch out and think outside of the box. So again, a, a New York City ballet commission just makes sense. Congratulations to her. Yeah. And shout out to Solange. I, I, I really can't wait. I hope I can make my way in, in, into one of those performances, maybe in May. All right. One more accidental. And uh, what you think, Scott? We're going to give it this. And I think we need to give it a little bit of this as well, because one of classical music superstars, the story always, you know, people love the rise, but what they love more than the rise is the fall. Is the fall. And if anybody fell, <laughs> somebody fell this week, and his name is Placido Domingo. How about you give us a little bit of this story? This comes from the WashingtonPost.com. The headline, Placido Domingo's days as a performer should be over. This is uh, filed under perspective by Michael Andor Brodeur. Okay, so we, we, we love to just start by unpacking the titles a little bit. It did not say Placido Domingo's days as a performer are over. It said be. something else. Why did the writer select that title? What What are your ideas on the very intentional de- decision to say should be over as opposed to is over? He's highlighting the fact that Placido is very much engaged in various opera houses around Europe. There are a few very lucky people listening to this podcast right now who do not know who Placido Domingo is. <laughs> and first of all, shout out to you. Let me get let me give you a round of applause. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but for, so for those people, Scott, mm-hmm. who is this person? Why are we talking about Placido Domingo? Why is he re- relevant? Uh, this is one of these guys that has built a reputation um, as being one of these fine voices, one of these fine tenors. I believe he has performed in various makeups. <laughs> Go ahead. You, you say what you say. I'm just say. saying Go it's on. there. There's there's pictures. <laughs> sure, but you know but, it wasn't, and it wasn't that you know that that got people talking about right. a career that should be over, which is another part of the conversation. But anyway, go ahead and talk uh, about this situation. Right. So the uh, the reporter goes on to say here, Placido Domingo, the disgraced 81 year old operatic tenor, roundly exiled from opera circles in the United States for allegations of sexual harassment that spanned three decades 
has now reportedly been linked by Argentine prosecutors to a criminal enterprise in Buenos Aires that included sex trafficking of minors. It's easy for some people to say that we're just joining the bandwagon of throwing tomatoes and yelling shame at this person. But I think it's so important for people to understand that there are just evil things that happen in our world and happen within this world of Western classical music that we don't like to think about, that we may not even realize the extent to which they exist, but they exist. We're talk we're not talking about he was caught with somebody or there there were accusations. We're talking about a criminal a criminal ring, mm-hmm. you know, that this man is tied to. We have to realize that that is the depth to which these evils exist to our in our world and and even touch the world of classical music. So you your question was why should we care or we're just out to cancel this man? That's the question. Yeah. Um, because they have to be stopped. That's why. Because they have to be stopped. And you, as a a, a listener who perhaps venerates this man, you need to know that his proximity to this music is not cover for any nefarious behind-the-scenes goings-on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just because somebody works in classical music does not mean that they're the you know this uh, fine button-down do everything right sort. Right. Right. There are creepy people everywhere, man, and we have to be aware of that fact and not shocked <laughs> when when these people with all of these privileges and all of this access to all of these things it gets uncovered. We did hear from Placido Domingo. He had the opportunity to offer some words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what did he do? What many people do in these situations? Apologize, unapologize. What is it? What, what does it say there? As for Domingo, he took the brave step of confronting his demons in public by posting to Facebook an apology that quickly morphed into a denial. My apology was sincere and heartfelt to any colleague that I have made to feel uncomfortable or hurt in any manner by anything that I've said or done, he typed, setting up the twist, but I know what I have not done, and I'll deny it again. I've never behaved aggressively towards anyone, and I have never done anything to obstruct or hurt anyone's career in any way. And of course, there are people for whom his fame and his whatever does not matter. I'm reading from the comments, okay, of that apology that he posted on Facebook, that so-called apology. One of them here says, Dear Maestro, wherever you sing, I will be there. I stand by you unconditionally because I believe what you say. Another one here says, Maestro, to be your fan is an honor and a privilege. You taught me how to love opera wisely as a perfect combination of the beauty of music and the richness of human feelings contained in libretti. Uh, I can I can go on and, and read more. What is there to say about the fact that we have evidence that this very famous opera singer was tied up in this sex trafficking ring? And you have women here in the comments of of that so-called apology saying, we stand with you no matter what. It's it's like there's this, and I think we're going to get into this in the triloquy, but this respect of the idea of a person more than the respect of of human lives who have been negatively mm-hmm. impacted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that. It's it's the veneration and uh, turning a blind eye to the fact that they have some of the the same uh, issues, problems, demons as the person that are in your everyday life. Mm, 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 mm. 
there is something to say as well uh, about the writer of this Washington Post piece because you know he has some ideas that he wasn't. <laughs> you know he's yeah. he feels irritated too. Let me um, let, let me read a little bit here. It says on the international stage, Domingo has largely weathered the storm of consequence and remained an in-demand international star. But why? I can tell you right now. It's not his voice. (laughs) (laughs) You know, an understandably diminished instrument. You know, uh, what fire once lit up his voice is half supplied by the flame that lives in the listener's memory. Still, that strained nostalgia (laughs) is valuable stuff. I think it's great, Scott, for once to see writers who, who, and I'm not saying that this person is the first one and that may, is not necessarily uncommon in arts journalism, but it would be very easy for a writer to play soft shoe and mm-hmm. reporting on, on this issue, considering who it is. But this writer says, no, get him out of here. It's, it's, we're done. You're, you're done. Pack up your bags and leave. It's good to see that sort of conviction and that standing up for those young women, even in the energy and the and the personality of this piece how does he says how desperate and sad to see institutions pretend that domingo is a legend instead of a man that his artistic legacy must be preserved at the expense of their own integrity then again that integrity needs to come from somewhere mm, mm, shade mm. <laughs> of, of, of course you know the the industry is going to uh industry when it comes to these things one thing it lays out here uh it says as this article uh was written on august 18th we're, we're uh, recording this on august 22nd but it says as of thursday morning domingo was still on the calendars of arena monterey and monterey mexico arena de verona um the place we were talking about a couple weeks ago with the black face uh, in, a, in addition to a, a, a few other venues, you brought up uh, the other uh, shamed, defamed, very famous opera person who got caught up in some some other similar things, James Levine, mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. he's still out here working mm-hmm. and, and doing Quietly. gigs. What is there to, to be said about that? We have public evidence of, of this incredibly heinous activity from these men and it's not a deal breaker for some of these uh for for some of these venues and less so for the audience members of of those venues creepy i don't know i don't get it it's like we we hold up uh uh classical music uh i you know as an idea at least as this moral good for communities and you know uh un unobjectively uh vital to the human experience and all of these things but you have this industry going along with with rapists and mm-hmm. and and with and with people who need to be locked up somewhere and not and not singing on stage it can be it can be really discouraging it's it's hard not to not to want to throw your hands up in the air at, at these institutions who just don't care that, would, that women are, are being harmed at the hands of these white men. Would you like to read the last sentence of this uh, perspective piece? Go for it. To the scrap heap. <laughs> and period. All right. Well, I'll have that in the description. I'll, I'll let y'all uh, pass, your, pass your own judgments again, just to reiterate. I'm very sensitive to jumping on news headline bandwagons and piling on to someone just for the sake of it. I don't see this as that. I see this as us facing the reality, one of the very important realities of our field. We can talk about all day Placido Domingo and all of these other men who 
um, have been not only accused, but uh, proven guilty. I think the next step of that conversation is realizing that we aren't on the same page as an industry when it comes to sexual assault. There are audiences for whom that's not a big deal. There are whole ass institutions for whom that is not a big deal. I hope the institution that you work for uh, thinks it's a big deal. Hopefully you won't have to be talking about Placido Domingo anymore, playing no. any more of those recordings. Oh, but what good does that do? I can I can hear it, you know, from the opposition right now. Well, it offers room to composers and performers and music creators who aren't rapists, period. That's number one. It's, it's, it's as simple as that. All right. Well, um, I did want to pull out some positive from Argentina, since that's, you know, where this whole story uh, exploded and where everything was found out. So I, I did a, a simple uh, Google search and uh, looked up, I uh, did a little bit of research on women composers from Argentina, and uh, I found the name Maria Luisa Anido. Did you know that name or, no, or know her music? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that's the point. There will always be more people to learn, more people to offer space to, instead of repeatedly, you know, beating these dead horses, uh, <laughs> literally, right. you know, to death. And, and stuffing that down people's throats. There's there's too much stuff out there to discover. So uh, this is a tune called Aire Norteño by Maria Luisa Anido, the, uh, a solo guitar work. And you said you'd listened to this uh, guitarist before. Are you familiar right. with this Right. No, she has a stream you know, okay. on, on YouTube that I've tuned in and out of. Yeah. Her name is uh, Katy Mayorga performing Aire Norteño by Maria Luisa Anido to get us into the second movement of this week's opus. she do there what you think what you think of that performance i love it the fact that she's doing all of this with her eyes closed number one but um it gives me hope that someone who has thin fingers like me can <laughs> get a bar chord as firm as she was well you know I, I can also tell that she practices with her metronome can you Yes. You're saying something without saying something? I am. Mm -hmm. And we're here in the second movement, mm -hmm. <laughs> where Scott and I are going to share with y'all some music that we've been spending some time with this week. Before, just real quick, it seems like guitar is one of those uh, rememorizer instruments. It seems like a lot of pianists like to play from memory. And it seems like every time I see a really uh, engaging guitar performance, the guitarist is playing from memory. It doesn't mm -hmm. seem like the tradition is to just, you know, look at the look at the sheet music sure. and, and do it that way maybe maybe practicing the hand positions and how you're going to finger certain things just manifesting the piece being memorized by the time you really get good at playing you it. just said it huh yep that's interesting yeah after you've gone through it enough times where you're trying to figure out the quickest way to get from one phrase to the next mm -hmm. and um, then you start worrying about musicality you know because you're not right. looking at the page and you start emoting and things like that that's a and look, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I, I, that's one of those conversations that uh, we have in like the Western classical teaching things or, you know, how to approach pedagogy. There are some people who 
are really against making students memorize things because hmm. you know that that's not useful or whatever. For me, as I, I won't even speak to other people or students. For me personally, I feel like I'm not really playing a piece, or I really know a piece until it's memorized. So for me, memorizing a piece of music is a means toward practicing that piece of music more right. and becoming right. more familiar with it. And there's just nothing more free than playing a piece of music that you just know, as opposed to being worried, okay, I marked that F as a natural. Am I going to remember? You know, so <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I don't know. For, for folks who in the in the deep world of, of practice and orchestral performance and stuff, you know, something for you to, you know, consider or, or offer me your thoughts on. I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan of, of memorizing, even though that's not a part of the orchestral tradition. And, and sometimes it's difficult, but I've performed, I, I think, four or five concertos memorized now. And I think it just would have been a different ball game if I had to sit there reading oh, yeah. the, the piece of music. That would oh, yeah. th that would be something different anyway. But uh, I'm sharing a recording this week. I'll, I'll go ahead and, and go first. Uh, a whole body of musicians who I'm sure were reading the music, but <laughs> but but offering something really incredible. So in the introduction, I mentioned Ennio Morricone mm -hmm. as one of the many uh, Italian composers to really make a name in the world of film. Where there's another composer who I was listening to. Uh, this week. His name is Piero Piccioni. Um, the piece we're going to hear um, is called Il Monaco from a film of the same name. I actually got onto this piece of music watching the show Atlanta by Donald Glover. Have you ever checked out any I of haven't. that show or anything? Sorry. It's very provocative, very thought provoking uh but i would i would categorize it as black surrealism mm. so taking black experiences and just exploding it in this theatrical way uh there's an episode where um a character played by the late kevin samuels uh gives a, a surprise speech to the graduating senior class and you know he talks about the importance of this high school as an alum and when i met your principal um uh, i just knew i had to come speak so out of gratitude for what this school has done for me i'm going to pay for the full college tuition of the graduating class members who are black <laughs> so we do the so, Scott's Tots. <laughs> so of course you can imagine the tension that he created in that gym, mm. you know. <laughs> and so the 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 episode is about a kid who has a black dad, but um appears white, is white passing, uh -huh. and how you know this character played by Kevin Samuels denies him the scholarship in a rage. Over not being able to do this, and sorry to you know give away the episode or whatever, but in a rage, he um, puts together this flamethrower and is gonna go um, burn down the school. There's the kid builds a flamethrower. Yeah. Okay, so you did say it was surreal. All right. Yeah. There's another kid <laughs> who also didn't get a scholarship because he is not Ados. He's from. He's Nigerian. And Kevin Samuel's character didn't give him a scholarship either because you know being black in America. Da da da. All of that to say that these two kids show up to school with these flamethrowers out of rage to burn the school down. And of course, they end up trying to flame each other because that's just <laughs> what would happen. So while this is happening, this tension of two kids, you know, on the verge of killing each other because of this divisive situation that somebody, you know, brought into the school, you have this piece of music, Il Monaco, by Piero Piccioni playing. And it caught my attention. And it's been what I've been listening to this week.
Also, of course, this sort of music would easily find a place on a a Halloween radio special right. or some sort of orchestra pops or whatever. But sometimes I think we just ignore the the different kind of beauty of music that sounds like that. It's easy to put it in context when you know you have something like two kids trying to flamethrow each other. <laughs> but even in itself, to me, when I hear that type of music, I hear some really beautiful music. I hear some uh, intriguing music, music that helps me think and I don't know. It, it it may not be what a lot of people are going to classical music to listen to, but I think it's something. What do you what do you think about that <laughs> little bit of music we heard? I was just about to ask you what was it that stuck out and made you come back to it? It it, it was it was just the way that the music impacted the scenery. You know, maybe so you're talking to, about with the with the visuals, right? It, right. Okay. Right. But then once you center in, because I had to. Uh, there's a I forget the name of the website, but you know if I I just Googled the episode and the word um, composer and it just listed all of the songs sure. in the thing, you know. So I I don't know. I, I think there's something to be said about a show uh, like Atlanta reaching into the orchestral canon in that way to to you know add a little sauce to a scene with with the hip hop we were talking about last week. Um, you know, I mentioned that hip hop sees this sound, mm -hmm. the symphonic mm -hmm. sound and those things. The converse doesn't necessarily happen all the time or, or very rarely. I think this is another example of that. You have Donald Glover creating this black show and his team, you know, with the the reach to understand the depth to which there's orchestral music that can feed the scenes, the, uh, the, the visuals that they're creating. And, you know, yet another example for us to consider what the the converse looks like black folks black culture american culture is reaching into the canon reaching into the tradition it's time for the tradition to reach to the community reach mm. to the people i mean and and i can i can speak to that all day and then go in, into abstract thought but at the end of it all, ultimately, this was a piece of music that caught my attention and one that I've in enjoyed listening to. And that the the music was a character in the exactly. show that you were watching. Exactly. Mm, you know, just a and and before I pass it on, you know, it, it also makes me think of the Bernard uh, Herman. I think that's his name. Was it the Psycho uh, theme from sure. Psycho? Mm -hmm. You know that we know the ching ching ching. We 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 right. know that part, but the piece of music is is really incredible. And hearing that in context of three four time and a conductor up there keeping it all together, we it, it deserves more room beyond just Halloween mm. or, or or scary music time. If if that's how we're introduced to it, you know, through television and and these things, so be it. But I'm 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 here to leave some some more room. So I encourage everyone first and foremost, if you don't know again the name Ennio Morricone, check out some of his stuff. And then if you want to go even deeper into the Italian film music, I've been checking out music of Piero Piccioni. That one is called Il Monaco. That's my second ending for this week. What you got? Well, uh, speaking of music where the uh, a metronome wasn't involved in any way, <laughs> um, I'm. Uh, brought in a piece of music I, I don't know this this like this last week was really strange for me i mean i didn't leave uh the danger mouse and black thought one alone yeah me neither cheat codes was yeah. still in pretty heavy rotation same um but i have to i have to say that uh i went to some other uh danger mouse releases and uh listened to that and but nothing, you're not talking about them not having no metronome not having no beat no yeah. no no what i was talking about is just is is not is nothing was really 
making me stay. I felt sure. I felt like I was still grasping for something. Uh, like I'm still God. I mean, I feel like that right now. That I'm that so many things are just at my fingertips, mm-hmm. and I feel like I like, like if I could just get a little bit higher on my toes, I could reach it. Or I grab onto something and then it gets yanked away. Sure. And so I needed something that didn't have the familiar feel like the Black Thought release did, things that I didn't recognize. And quite frankly, I wasn't really sure where it was going to go. And mm-hmm. so I went to Alan Hovannis. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Armenian American composer who uh, writes, uh, you use the word ethereal, and I think yeah. that's accurate. Um, uh, Debussy-esque in that it's just sort of, um, you know, he just kind of puts all the thoughts out there. and Like an you... impressionist painting, how yeah. that looks, but music. Right. But his second symphony, Mysterious Mountain, uh, also goes along with, you know, we're coming to the end of summer and I'm seeing people posting their their last trip of the of the summer season pictures, mm-hmm. you know. A buddy of mine uh, recently uh, had a career change and he's based out of Aspen now and he's sending me all these photos from the road of him driving out there. And Mysterious Mountain, for some reason, was working for me in that moment. And I liked the way that I didn't know when a change was coming or where the, the one, two, three happened. Mm-hmm. I, I like the fact that I wasn't exactly sure when the next swell would subside. this quote from Hovannis. He says, mountains are man's attempts to know God. Hmm. And I don't, they, they call to me and I haven't responded to the call for a couple of years now and it's getting louder and louder. The, the mountains calling to you? They do. We need to, you, you, you me and Dill, we'll get on an airplane and, and go to a mountain somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'll have a direct flight to, to a mountain, to the mountains, please. please. Yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Comfort plus if you have it. Thank you. No. Um, oh, what, what, I, what I was, uh, you know, going to mention is that uh, Alan Havanis is a uh, Armenian American composer, but passed away back in 2000 in the city of Seattle. That was the Seattle symphony we heard playing that. And I think uh, there, there's a lot of uh, examples of how Havana's had a local impact there, how he wasn't just the composer, you know, with, with the single candle lit in his basement. He mm. actually has some connection to the community and, and local musicians and, and that sort of thing. So it's really great to uh, hear his his legacy lived on uh, and, and celebrated by the, the local orchestra there. I have to admit, I'm not typically in the music for in the mood for the really ethereal music i like the one i like a sure you know i, I like a nice beat but um I, I i do appreciate just the very cloudy nature of 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 this music you know it's been some uh intense couple weeks for me um at work it's it, you know it's I, I've, I've basically had to decide that i have to wake up earlier and you know monday through thursday get a little less sleep 
than than I would like. So mm. when it is time for me to listen to some music, especially at the end of the day, maybe have a little bit of a headache or you know my my eyes are strained. I had to buy some special um, blue bo- blocker glasses, get some blue blocker, put on my glasses because looking works, at the, huh? the screen all day. Anyway, after all of that, it is nice to you know sometimes go back to that you know softer and not softer in dynamic, but just softer in attitude. Just you know music that's more of a pillow to mm. to sit your uh lay your head on here's a here's a little bit of the end of this uh first movement of Havana's symphony number no. two the mysterious mountain And then if you really want to unpack some things and 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 be a music nerd about it, the performance of it requires a type of sensitivity. You just can't put the instrument to your mouth and blow, you know, or, mm. you know, you can't just uh, throw the bow on the string. Didn't I tell the strings to put the bow on the string a couple of weeks ago? Like, yep. you know, there, <laughs> there's a sensitivity to it. And then in, in practicing that sensitivity that approach to playing you know there's a certain connection to life experience that i feel like Mm. a person needs it's it's not just technique that allows one to create those you know very soft very delicate entrances and and cutoffs you know there's there's just life in in that music so yeah Mm. it's it's great to return to uh alan havanas i used to um you know whenever i played his music on the radio uh, I would really lean into the fact that, you know, um, he's Armenian American because I know a lot of, maybe not a lot, I know several Armenian American uh, musicians and uh, and conductors specifically. So I would I would make those connections. Mm-hmm. You always have the grumpy people who are like, oh, well, why are you talking about that? Does it all his music is what matters? But that's a that's a culture and a part of the world that you don't think about every day. How many times do most people think about Armenia? And that culture and and that perspective. Um, so I, I, I also think about that when it comes to the music of of Alan Havan. It's just allowing us to expand our world and, yeah. and think about a part of the world that we don't always think about. Yeah, I usually think about him whenever one of his symphonies comes across. <laughs> yeah, right, right. You see, but you know, there's a whole culture and there's a whole set of stories yeah. and, and traditions that exist in this place that uh where you know where alan havanas may be that bridge for us to you know be a little bit more curious and learn what their unique contributions to classical music have been and how you know we can talk about decolonization and in that context anyway you know all, all these all these rabbit trails that uh you can uh, get into talking about this music but we're going to go ahead and get into the third movement i'm really happy this week to feature uh, my conversation with mara bosch mara is a twin cities based composer who has started uh, an organization, a salon, a consortium called the Waves Cafe. Yeah. So how this works is uh, Mara has a space over in Minneapolis, books a certain amount of time uh, with the help of her uh, creative team, curates local artists, poets, uh, musicians, composers, improvises them, and invites them to this space. But it's not a concert 
in that audience members can come in and out, um, can buy food or a coffee in the lobby, meet people and talk about what they're hearing. One of the things that uh, Mara talks about is uh, how restrictive that concert experience can be and how sit down, be quiet and only clap <laughs> when we say so, you know, can reverberate into, you know, something that isn't necessarily celebratory of the musicians mm -hmm. or or what the today of music is. So she's created this new space and uh, she joined me here in studio last week uh, to talk with me about it. One of the things that she mentioned in the interview is that um, there are musical experiences that she used to have as a younger person that she doesn't have often or can't have in traditional concert spaces, uh, moments of excitement or or feeling seen, you know, mm. through a, a piece of music. And an example that she gave was the first time she heard Alanis Morissette's You Oughta Know. It's funny that that came up because we were listening to that after we uh, uh, cut off the mics last week. Sure. Um, so, you know, one of those classic compositions you you smirk is it, you you something must come to mind when i mention that song it's a genuine <laughs> grin okay so we're going to get into my conversation uh with the string quartet arrangement of it the modern string quartet they're good they're good at that's their name uh they're good about creating string quartets of all different sorts of things in the sound of 13 i think uh the first season i included their recording of feeling good you know mm. when we think about nina simone mm -hmm. well they recorded um a, a really cool rendition of alanis morissette's you ought to know so we'll get into that to lead me into our conversation to lead y'all sorry <laughs> into my conversation uh with mara bosch hope y'all enjoy When I compose, the one and only thing I go back to when I sit down to write music is I go back to um, experiences I had frequently as a young person, less frequently as an adult, and now only very occasionally once every couple of years of where you, you just hear something that you never heard before and it's like, you know, it's like you get chills. You don't know what it is, and, um, and that's that's the new, and that's the breaking of the status quo. I mean, I guess the status quo that's getting broken is my own internal sense of what music is, and then a piece comes along, and all of a sudden, it's it's like completely outside of the realm of anything I considered to be music before. Mm. So as much of a relationship you have with the nuance of these conversations of new music and, and composition, a concert space, as it were, is a place where a person would likely not see you or maybe never see you. <laughs> I wonder if you could speak to that. It's the, the kind of experience that I'm talking about hardly ever happens in concerts. Um, actually, when I was a kid, when it happened was 
listening to the radio Mm -hmm. and something would come on. Or um, I still remember this is, I was already grown up at the time, but 1992 or whatever, um, you ought to know. um, Alanis Morissette. Yeah. Alanis Morissette. And it was like, oh, oh my God, you know, and it wasn't, yeah, it was the politics of the song and her her tone and the angry female thing, but it was literally the the notes and the the voice and the sound of that piece that just blew me away. And so, and that that happened uh, in the car, you know, driving around Lake Harriet. So, it was, do you do you still uh, have a relationship with radio as much as we uh, critique concert spaces, concert halls? I think it's fair to critique some of the radio spaces yeah. in a similar way. I've lost that connection with radio. So back in the uh, early 90s, there there was uh, a couple stations um, where you could rev 105 or something like that that you could listen to and mm-hmm. and it would bring out, you know, like the, the bands from Seattle and things like that that uh, you wouldn't hear anywhere else. There, I mean, we do have... Uh, you know, the current here. And I, mm-hmm. it's just, I, I'm just not listening to that now. Now we, um, we, I, my family, we, we listen mostly on YouTube. So, okay. um, and we would play YouTube tag. Although that stopped working a couple of years ago, YouTube changed their algorithm of how they bring up the next thing. So oh, sure. it's a lot more, a lot less fun than it used to be <laughs> a few years ago. So. I mean, we we can we can talk all day about what isn't great in the arts field and and what needs to change, but few people actually come up with solutions or at least their own solutions. But you have the Waves Cafe. I wonder if you'll uh, tell folks what is the Waves Cafe. Yeah. Well. The Waves Cafe is not really a cafe. But, <laughs> um, I uh, spent some time in Amsterdam, and I was really loved that uh, they had arts cafes, mm-hmm. and there were a couple new music cafes. There were other cafes that were maybe more devoted to poetry or performance art or theater, but um, there were a number of really great uh, new music cafes and. And it would be, and I, and I just love, you would just go in there and you'd have your cup of coffee and your outsmider, like pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> and, um, and then there would be something going on music, you know, in the, in the stage and you could go in and out and you could listen to it. Another place that, um, I was lucky enough to spend time at was, uh, uh my husband and I lived in Bath. England for mm-hmm. a while and there was a place called the Moles Club and it was just a really cool progressive well rock club mm-hmm. but the the early hours of the rock club were um always devoted to you know what we would consider to be you know classical new music mm-hmm. and so that was really cool and then they had um they had a DJ that would just play music all over the place just um you know mixing Philip Glass with you too, and that sure. kind of stuff. Uh, so, so the Waves Cafe is the Minnesota version of. Well, <laughs> it, it could be. It's um, the Waves Cafe is a pop up uh, monthly pop up poetry and music cafe, 
And, um, and it, it is what it is largely because a space opened up in South Minneapolis that was crying out for some music mm-hmm. and nobody was bringing music to this. It's a, a new space that was open in a building called the Center for Performing Arts in South Minneapolis. No music. And I, and I said, well, we've got to get some music in there. And so we go in there once a month and we rent multiple spaces in the building. And so one of the spaces is our stage for performance. And then there's a nice big lobby. And then you go up some stairs and then there's a quote unquote cafe where mm-hmm. so far we just sell drinks and pretzels. <laughs> but we have a live stream of the uh of the performance in the cafe. And then the, what I want is I want for people to feel free to move in and out of the concert. So we leave the doors open all to, in the concert space to the lobby. And I want people to get up and move about and go up to the cafe and, you know, have it, have, have a soda or whatever and a pretzel <laughs> And and then come back or and just and not feel tied to their seats. So so many of us are trained, maybe uh, conditioned because of the uh, concert hall, concert space, as it were, to, you know, want to be there at the beginning or feel like we need to be there at the beginning and stay to the very end, maybe out of respect for the performers. What's your what's your response to that? Should we not be respecting all of the performers on a? Uh, no, and at the way we structure our programs is that the performers come and go throughout the program. Mm. And so um, most of our programs consist of solos and duos and then people coming back in collaboration with different partners and throughout the show. So if, if you only came to the first half of the show, you would see everyone. And um, is this programmed in advance or can people just show oh, up? Or Yeah, so I am posting the order of the program okay. on the website a week ahead of time. And we're starting our first full season in September. Um, and with the start of the, this season, we will be trying to make it just, we're organizing it slightly differently to make the audience feel more comfortable with this, you know, free flowing atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. What is required of, uh, or what do you encourage, maybe I should say, audience members to have in mind when they engage the Waves Cafe? They aren't in a typical concert setting. Um, That goes for the culture of the space, but maybe also the actual art that they're engaging in the space. We made a list of like how we define a Waves event Mm -hmm. and um, qualities of the Waves event. And... Most of them are actually uh, determined by the space, the physical space that mm. we're working in. So a Waves uh, Cafe is informal. It's intimate. Uh, the, the music, the program is unpredictable. And it's improvisatory. So it's kind of improvisatory overall. But then there's also a lot of, you know, live improvisation right. going on. And then the two most important qualities that we have um, for this is that um, it's cross-disciplinary, so it's never limited to just music, mm-hmm. and, and genre agnostic is our other um, 
like very important value. And the the cross-disciplinary part is that um, I feel that music has some problems that poetry does not have. Hmm. Um, And I I don't know about the other art forms. I'll let some other artists speak for that. (laughs) But music has some problems. Music has this, you know, music has like a money problem. Hmm. Music has, you know, definitely has like a classical music problem. You know, poetry doesn't have that. Music, and because music is collaborative and you, you don't have music unless you're actually making it in front of an audience. Um, it's all this kind of social stuff comes into play. And, and so we're, we're thinking that um, by mixing music and poetry, and so we do have poets reading, and then we have musicians playing, and then we also have musicians and poets performing together. Mm. Um, we, we, we think that that will help change the way people listen to music. So we like the way that the way you listen to a poem is informing the way people listen to music and the way people listen to music is informing the way people listen to a poem. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating and and uh, really efficient at the yeah. same time, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. getting these different things at once and how they are yeah. complementary. It's not just a juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. And I imagine it could be another art form besides poetry. Poetry is what we're doing with mm-hmm. this this first, um, you know, time in the world with waves. So, what does the curation process look like? How do you get the artists um, in the space? The um, the curation process is mainly Paula Chazewski, uh, Twin Cities poet, and myself, and then um, me along with um, Jeffrey Brooks, a composer who's my husband, also. Um, Haley Olson, who's mm-hmm. on our board, and um, Jeff Johnson, and um, he's a guitarist and actually an old friend of my family, and um, and so H- Haley, Jeff, and I are kind of like the utility players mm-hmm. on the waves. So, like whenever we have like space to fill up on a program, like. Jeff will come out and do an improv with someone, or I'll get up and play the piano and do something. And same with Haley. And um, but then, w- w- what each of us has done is we've just reached out to our friends and literally asked them. And then um, at this point, we do pay the musicians, um, but we we try and we don't we pay them an honorarium. Mm-hmm. But uh, we. Um, respectful honorarium (laughs) but um and we hope in the future to pay them more um but also we try to make it um be be um you know just easy and fun and what we're finding is that um some some musicians who don't don't need a stage like Mm -hmm. they're doing very well have are finding that they like to be on waves and what they like about waves is they like this improvisatory thing. They like collaborating with people that they haven't collaborated with before. Um, so we had uh, a couple months ago, we had Davu Seru mm-hmm. on our, 
our concert and um, I, I just called it a concert <laughs> <laughs> on our waves and um, and he came and he played a solo which was really cool because mm-hmm. he doesn't get to get up and do solos too often and then he did an improvisation with another person and um, he's now and you know he doesn't need the money you know he doesn't He's not getting famous by playing on waves, but he's coming back not once, but twice this fall. So he's coming in October and November. And then we're, he's, he's, oh, and your question about how we get the musicians. So Davu is suggesting different people that he would wants to be paired with when he comes back. And so we're just like a little network um, of things going out into the community. And for folks who, uh, don't know Davu. He also uh, is a writer, uh, a literary <laughs> scholar in his own right. So you know that 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 sort of uh, right. cross pollination is is really cool as well. Yeah. The Waves Cafe um, happens. You know, you use the word intimate to describe it. Do you see it as a possibility to grow this concept in scale? Is a Waves mm. Cafe with three hundred people in the in the audience something that you ever aspire to, or is the intimate nature a part of what um, makes it so special? Um, the intimate nature is the intimate part is very important. Mm. That what we aspire to is that the, this waves is a prototype for something that I would like to see pop up in other cities, other communities, and um, so, for instance, all the musicians that I mentioned uh, were local mm-hmm. and. Um, I could give you a little backstory here about that, which was um, back in, it was 2001, and I was really depressed about composing. And um, I started a farmer's market in South Minneapolis, and it was the Kingfield Neighborhood Association Farmer's Market. And um, I ran it from for almost 10 years, and now it's massive. It's huge. But the concept of this market was that it was this this little um you know neighborhood farmers market the the vendors were all local and um you know and yeah so there were farmers who they were local people who were renting uh farm space out in different places outside the city but um the um but i learned so much from running that market and one of the main things that I learned about the market was I, I took care of the vendors. I didn't worry about the customers. Mm. Like I thought all I need is I need vendors and I want to, I want to get the vendors to come and I want them to feel good about being there. And so I made a lot of crazy efforts to make vendors feel good. Like I would go over to someone's bakery and pick up a pile of bread and bring it over mm-hmm. to the market to sell it for them because they couldn't spare the staff and sure. things like that. But um, the uh, but once the vendors took hold, the whole thing just grew and grew and grew and it became its own thing. So, so it, uh, with the waves, I feel like my job is to take care of the performers. That, that's a very interesting approach, and I can't disagree with its uh, viability or the successes that are attached to it. When I think about my uh, 
involvement with participating in concerts by, you know, some of the the big box ensembles, as I'll call them, you know, it really matters to me what's on the program. So if there's a local artist, uh, for, for example, uh, I, I say the name Pavel French a lot oh. on, on my show, you know, when yes. she performs with one of the local orchestras, that's what gets me there. And mm-hmm. that seems to, uh, I don't know, run contrary to this idea that the audience should be centric. It, it, it sounds like what you're saying is that by paying extra attention to what's being offered, the diverse audience, the, the intimate audience, whatever you're looking for will come along. Yes. And, um, and if anything, it's the complete opposite of the orchestra, mm-hmm. where the orchestra, the mission of the orchestra is it's an educational institution. Mm-hmm. They're there to educate the public. And, you know, that's, that's really weird to say. <laughs> like, my, my kids went to public school and they had to be dragged to the orchestra to be educated, you know? And, and so, it, that and the the way the the mission of the waves is much more focused on having a space where people can create something new. Mm-hmm. Is what what so we're focused on the creators, the mus- in this case the musicians and the poets. So we we talk about the waves cafe as this uh, open space, this intimate space, this space free of. A certain status quo that doesn't mean it's a neutral space. We we fall into this trap oftentimes in the arts of thinking of these spaces as ones that should not include political or, or socioeconomic conversations or or just contemporary culture. I wonder if you can speak to that. Does advocacy and activism have a place at the Waves Cafe? It it comes and goes. Hmm. So it's it's really the performers. So yes, some of our performers are very strongly political mm-hmm. and some of them are less so. And, um, you know, and, and then there's arguments that all, okay, even if there's no words, all music is political. Mm. And because, because it takes place in a space, you know, and so there's money involved and how did that space come into existence or it's all political. And um, yes, yeah, so then some, some of the performers um, do um, wear their politics just right out in the open and others less so. But if anything, I think that's been really cool for a number of reasons um, where the, um, the, because you could have a piece that was very strongly political, and we've had a few of few of them on our show, um, and, or several of our shows, right next to something that's um, just kind of dreamy and slow, mm-hmm. and um, and so the juxtaposition is becomes part of the message too. My husband just uh, Jeffrey Brooks just premiered a piece called. The Steinocaster, the art of fugue, and his, but so yes, it was totally. You would say it's not political. Mm-hmm. It's the it was like inspired by the Bach art of fugue, which is, but, but no, it was like radically political because mm. he took a a giant piano and um, put a 
big giant pickup in it that it wasn't literally a guitar pickup, but that's why it's called Steinocaster. I see. Because it's the Steinway slash Stratocaster. Mm-hmm. But but he put this pickup in it and then and then he didn't play the keys. He played it with paintbrushes and other things and stuff. But that's political too, because it's um it takes this, you know, this icon, this big concert grand piano and turns it on its head and so so all of it's political when it comes to this curation and you know melding the political with the musical and and those things is there anything that you're specifically not looking for when it comes to programming and curating Um, the waves cafe is anything not welcome the sim the simple thing we're not looking for is we're not looking for musicians to come in and read a score and play a piece by William Craft or something mm-hmm. like that. In other words, even though that is quote unquote new music, we're, 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 we want musician, creative musicians. So just like poets, you know, are getting up and reading their poetry, mm-hmm. we want musicians to, you know, we, we're not doing, con- it's not a concert is the main thing. So I can't come with my Mozart concerto heard. Well, you know, maybe you could. I mean, it's so that's the other thing. Oh, yeah. So we had a violinist um, on our 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 show a couple times, uh, Ray Kurt Lemieux, mm-hmm. who just moved to the Twin Cities about a year and a half ago. Um, and so a lot of people have been hearing him because he plays all over the place. And he puts together these medleys of classical pieces for violin. And it's it's great, you know. And you sort of hear that in the context of some, the next piece on this show is some weirdo, you know, electronic, <laughs> you know, sound wall. Yep. And then, then there's Ray Kurt and playing strangers in paradise sure. <laughs> on the violin so sure sure it's it's kind of great i like it but even so there's still that creative aspect yes, that, that you're looking totally. for yeah, yeah yeah you mentioned uh musician pay a little earlier i want to loop back around to the money part of the mm-hmm. conversation it costs money to rent spaces and yeah. to you know get musicians and and all of of these sorts of things what is the waves cafe's approach to the financial part of running an organization is it very different than what you know the the orchestras may do or even some of well, the chamber groups are doing it it is really different um from certainly it's very different from the orchestra or it's very different from the, the schubert club mm-hmm. where they have massive massive expenses and um and so we we do not have massive expenses so it's not totally free we have to rent the space and we want to pay the musicians, but it's, but our goal is to have this, um, this be a big event online as well as, um, as, um, you know, the live in-person event. And then because it's 12 a year and mm-hmm. we can get people in and then we are, um, because we have the audience is spread out between the performance space and the cafe that sure. allows us to get people in the door. We only charge $10 for people because we say everyone can pay, but then people who have the means, we say, Oh, you know, can you um, pay more? And then uh, one of the things that I, this, I got this from the moles club in England <laughs> is that 
we're selling lifetime memberships to the Waves Cafe. So um, I haven't quite figured out how much, but <laughs> at least $200. Okay. But, you know, so like almost anyone could afford it, but like having that, those kind of, so, um, you know, so then anytime they wanted to, they could show up at a Waves and not have to pay to get in. But um, I mean, you can easily spend $200 for a single opera ticket or a I single. Know, or, I know. So, I know. You know, uh, yeah. it's good to hear about a lifetime membership that doesn't take a lifetime to pay off. Or, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, you, you did mention um, the, the digital aspect, spreading mm-hmm. the waves to uh, audiences beyond who's just in the room. I wonder uh, if you'll speak to that. What does it look like now and what are your goals for creating a digital Waves Cafe experience? Yeah. So what it looks like right now is we have a YouTube channel where we post the stuff that we've shown. um, We have a live stream beginning with the September show. We're, We're going to publish the link to the live stream so people all over the place can um, look at it and then um, and then what I I want it to grow beyond Minneapolis I want it to have it in other sites um, I have a, a, a great digital guy who's coming on board with um, with the waves um, who's going to help me with this this bigger thing of um, kind of digital distribution and he does it he does it actually for a couple other organizations in the country, and um, so we're we're just at the very early stages of this. But um, I'm working on trying to raise money specifically for um, boosting the uh, the online capability of it. Well, as people across the country and around the world uh, wait for that to grow and and, <laughs> right. and get their access, uh, I wonder if you could give the local folks. Uh, maybe a a taste or a preview um, of what's coming up with the Waves Cafe oh. in the in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, coming coming weeks, we do have a show on uh, September fourth, and um, I know it's Labor Day weekend, but get used to it. Um, <laughs> our our shows are the first Sunday of each month. It's in South Minneapolis at uh, the Center for Performing Arts. 3754 Pleasant Avenue. Um, and um, in this uh, this September, we're going to have um, two of our special guests are Nitu Chango, who's a, a percussionist from Mozambique and mm. really cool, wonderful guy. We're going to have a little pocket percussion trio. Um, we're going to have Mike Ethan, electric guitarist, and Jeff Johnson. And um, in October, we've got, uh, oh, oh, we have poets, too, all over the place. Um, Paula Chizewski, Michael Torres, Catherine Rauch, um, Haley Lachey, Rachel Moritz are a few of the ones coming in the next couple of months. I mentioned Davu is uh, mm-hmm. going to be there in October and November. Um, George Cartwright is coming to perform with Davu on one of those nights. We have um, a wind player, Pat O'Keefe, who's mm-hmm. coming several times up. Pianist, Ellen Lease. Um, some people might know uh, from the jazz scene around here. And um, quite a few more. George Farah, poet. Roy Guzman, poet. And 
quite a few people. And yeah, the website is being updated with all of these uh, people as they are getting confirmed. So. Yeah. And that website is thewavescafe.com. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, to sort of tie a bow on our conversation, I wanted to give people uh, an audio sample of what happens at the Waves Cafe. And the performance that grabbed my attention the most is actually a collaboration between yourself and uh, the poet Paula Chazewski. I wonder if you'll offer some context about what we're about to hear. What's the music and what's the poetry and how they came together yeah. to complement each other? Yeah. Well, the music is an excerpt from Five Nocturnes for solo piano that I wrote relatively recently and um and um paula showed up with this poem and this uh this was in early july and it was 10 days after the supreme court came down with the uh, decision about abortion and the poem is actually not paula's own she's reading a poem by someone else the poem is called an abortion ban yeah. maya marshall yeah thank you for getting <laughs> that and um and um and i paula sent me the poem and she said well i just given what's going on in the world i have to read this tonight and um so so i just i knew exactly what part of my nocturnes I was going to um, use for it. And actually, the nocturne has a very striking title in itself, which is The Passion of Suicides Who Kill Themselves mm. Without Explanation. So that's from another poem. So, yeah, it was, anyway, we were all, you know, felt like we had been hit in the stomachs. <laughs> but uh, it was really great that Paula showed up with this piece of poetry to, to give to us all. An abortion ban is a body snatcher, is an ethnic cleansing. The uterus is a cave, is an incubator, is a vault, is a self-destructing bomb, is a thoroughfare. Semen is an innocent bystander. Penises are just boys being. A woman is a vestibule. A judge is a strict father. Is Joseph awed by his father's creation? Is Joseph relieved of fault? Is Joseph saving face? A woman is a support beam. A girl is a receptacle. A fetus without lungs is an unlucky horseshoe. A fetus in a homeless woman is an empty pillowcase. An embryo is a fingernail. A fetus is a jail. A woman who miscarries is a quarterback, executed, point blank. A woman with a felony is insulation. Let me say first that this sort of presentation is among my favorite ways to do performance. Uh, cabaret style or sure. salon style, like yep. you were talking about. Um, there is... Um, it's a. It's not a hundred percent things that are memorized, but you know it well enough that you can. Uh, there's a comfort level with it, but still some spontaneity right. to all the pieces, and the ability to talk with the artist after the performance, 
provides another layer of intimacy, right? This reminds me of Theater of the Oppressed, mm -hmm. speaking directly to the issues where even the audience members become a part of the show. Right. Love it. Right. Uh, and and this is a, a, a great way to have a, a meaningful impact on issues just like you're hearing um, directly and you mm -hmm. get to, you get to see the impact directly yep so if you're uh here in the twin cities that gets kicked off uh, the season starts september 8th i believe the date is you can get more information at thewaves.com uh one of the bigger projects that mara is working on is getting these performances put together um for uh, a radio program that mm. um i, I don't I'm, I'm thinking you know we're talking about me hosting it or you know just uh doing some production help but you know just feeling the media spaces as well with examples of what you know i'll use the word decolonize you know decolonize art spaces look like and what they sound like and and how we can engage audiences and engage narratives by opening up the door to that all right well we have a a little bit of a, a fourth movement a little bit of a triloquy this week and mm -hmm. uh it centers the music of beethoven as everything else tends to in this world of, of western art music but anyway <laughs> we're going to listen to the end of uh beethoven's choral fantasy to get us into uh, the fourth movement let's take a listen to this Choral Fantasy by Beethoven there. That's the that was the Singapore Symphony performing it. It's it's very grand music, you know, before we talk about the issue at hand, just when it comes to Beethoven, this composer that we do so much shitting on, you know. <laughs> mm. The music is grand, the music is enjoyable, and it's and it's it would be really great to be in that hall and hearing all of those vibrations and the intensity of that music live. So mm -hmm. these conversations aren't about discrediting the beauty and the genius of Beethoven's music, but that there's more out there than just that. But that's not what this is about. I brought up the Beethoven because the Philadelphia Orchestra is over in Europe trying to perform some Beethoven, but they're running into some snags. This is a headline from the Philadelphia Inquirer, Philadelphia Orchestra to Chorus. Put on masks. Chorus to orchestra. We're out of here. None of us like to, well, I won't say none of us like to wear masks because I like to have my mask on, especially mm -hmm. in the store. I don't have to fix my face. I can also understand when it comes to certain things when I do um, uh, uh, chanting, for example, and, and, and I'm chanting with a group of people or maybe at the center, wearing that mask can be a little bit annoying. You know, your face gets hot and then you're trying to speak a little louder so that you're in the mic. Yes, fine. But we still have COVID out here 
that's a thing, and and we have to adjust. Let me let me read just a little bit of this. It says the Philadelphia Orchestra is used to drawing attention for its European tours, and is once again, though not this time, for its silken sound. The orchestra kicked up a choral kerfuffle before even landing in Europe by asking the Edinburgh Festival Chorus to wear face masks for Thursday's Beethoven Symphony Number no. Nine performance. The chorus balked. The Beethoven was pulled. What do you think? This is the number one reason you're never <laughs> going to get a concert going with one of these hard right America fuck yeah people. Okay. Because you're going to be point. in a mask Good and point. they're going to be going, "Well, you plus anonymous, you you you're just you're just wearing a mask." Mm, 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 mm. Um I, I'm I'm reading here from the article. Uh, it's uh, there's a quote here. Uh what's paramount for us uh, and this is the uh CEO of of uh, the the Saratoga Performing Arts Center, what's paramount for us is that the musicians on stage are safe. And really the only way to do that is to ensure that people are masked unless they play a wind instrument. And we were concerned at the start of a European tour where the Philadelphia Orchestra is embarking on its first post-COVID international trip to some of the most beautiful and prestigious venues in Europe that everyone stay healthy throughout the tour. You know, we love to, you know, superimpose politics on this conversation. But I don't think that that's a farce. I don't think that's the uh, the so-called Miss America answer to say we're trying to make sure everyone is safe. I think that is a, an actual concern. Why not ask people to wear masks? What what is the what was the quote that we uh, pulled out of here? Somebody said it was absolute potty or absolute something. Absolute potty. <laughs> yep. That they would be expected uh, to, to wear masks. I don't know. We have Yannick on the podium. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we love talking about Yannick. He has a lot of wins. Would you feel discouraged if, uh, you know, you were counting on, you know, collaborating with these folks? Maybe you want to get uh, strengthened ties between uh, local English cultures and, and that sort of thing. And now we're arguing about about masks. What, what do you what do you think, you know, might be some of the energy or conversation around this when it comes to the future of live performance. I'm saying this is the future of live performance. Get ready for your programs to be all screwed up. Mm. Get ready for something that you're planning on not being there. Because as, as we have more people saying, look, this pandemic is, this Panera isn't over Mm -hmm. and the others are going to be forced. This is just going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think new requirements and a new reality should open up the door to new music or at least new ways to uh perform and engage this music again i feel like we were saying this about placido domingo and i definitely think it applies here it's the idea of a person it's the idea of beethoven the idea of prestige that is being foregrounded um above people's health Mm -hmm. and 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 potential safety it's a really dark spot on on classical music, on the genre, on the tradition for people to raise a stink and not care about human life as much as they care about, oh, but this is Beethoven and how dare you ask us to put on masks to perform this music. Well, why don't you tell everybody what piece got put in in place of Beethoven 9? Beethoven 5. <laughs> Something with no choir. And you know, so, this podcast is called Triloquy, right? Orchestras will have something to play. Orchestras will figure it out if y'all don't, if y'all, if choirs, if, if y'all don't want to act right, you know. Um, I think that's neither here nor there because I'm not trying to be divisive, but the show must go on and the show will go on. 
I feel like they threw the baby out with the bathwater and they make the masks <laughs> that have more face room so that you don't feel like, you know, you're you're everything is bouncing right back at you. Mm. Something something could have been done. It 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 feels like it's th- th- there's something more than just oh, we're uncomfortable with wearing masks because a way could have been made. This is my other thing. Edinburgh <laughs> If it wasn't some American orchestra coming over here trying to play our repertoire, let's say it was the uh, the Royal Philharmonic, and it's time to uh, sing Beethoven's Choral Fantasy or, or perform Beethoven 9 for Queen Elizabeth herself, and to keep the queen safe and healthy, y'all have to wear masks. Scott Blankenship, do you think the reaction would be the same? Do you think the choir would say, no, we're not singing for the queen and mass, we're, we're leaving? Or would they put on that damn mask and do what they're supposed to do? Is I, it their orchestra? Then yes, they would. I, you said the Royal Philharmonic? Right. Yeah, they would be masked up. I, so I, I, I think that has to be considered as well. I don't think it's a reach to, 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 to put that into the, into the cake mix. And instead, on a, uh, a certain classical music blog... One of the comments was, cancel the Philistines. Right? No, wait. <laughs> cancel the Philadelphians from appearing and send them back to America to ruminate on their decisions. <laughs> quiet, quiet. But you know what? If we will focus on our music and our traditions and not work so hard at venerating uh, the, the colonized view of classical music, they would be over here engaging some audiences like Solange is about to, instead of putting on those ties and try to uh, try to please all of these Okay, see, I I, quit. I almost I know, got problematic. I, I know. I was I was, <laughs> I was, I was going to say tea drinkers. Is that is that bad? <laughs> but you know, uh, again, you you can't ignore that sort of oh we're we're the originators of this. Look at y'all. So the way that England is looking down on y'all and throwing away y'all's uh, uh, mass requirement, that's the way. If even if you don't realize it, that you're looking down on the American tradition, on traditions that could engage more audiences and traditions ultimately that actually are classical from that American context. But you're looking down on all of that by censuring the same repertoire, the same composers and the same ways of doing it all again. I said back in January 2022 for me is about unity, about leading with compassion. So Thoughts and prayers to the Edinburgh Choir and to the Philadelphia Orchestra. Yannick is out here doing his best. We talk about him all the time. Anytime somebody's being equitable, Yannick somehow is in the room. (laughs) And y'all are just making it hard out here for this man. So let's think about our compassion. Before we just blindly go to bat for a world-famous opera singer, because he's a world-famous opera singer, let's think about the human lives that he impacted. Before we say, oh no, it's pure potty, or what, what was it, pure potty mm-hmm. that was said? It's pure potty for us to have to sing in mask. Well, maybe foreground and consider the, the human lives that could potentially be harmed by your singing and spitting and salivating all over <laughs> them to sing O to joy for the kajillionth time something that we can all sing along with you because we've heard it so many times let's foreground human life let's try to lead with that compassion let's try to build bridges everywhere we can again i'm talking about trying to get the you know find ways that we can even align with political conservatives if we can all just spend much more of our time figuring out how to do that and do that within the arts i think we'll have an art sector that more of us can stomach and you know that that they won't get any of us sick because we're wearing our masks, we're being polite, and we're you know enjoying the new along with 
the not so new. Oh, I can we can paint a beautiful picture, can't we? But the reality is so different. The absolute potty of it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank y'all, everybody. We'll see you next week. 